Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Good Code Podcast. I'm your host, Sanket. I'm the founder of Deep Source. Today, we have on the podcast, Timothy Chen, who's our guest. Timothy is a developer turned VC. Actually, he has been a member of the Apache Software Foundation in the past. He has been an ex-SVP of engineering at Tendermint, where he managed the Cosmos team. And he's also been a founder of Hyperpilot in the past. He has contributed to many large open source projects like Mesos, Drill, Spark, Kafka, etc. Timothy, welcome. Would love to uh, get an introduction from you as well. Yeah, great to be here. So my my quick intro. Yeah, thanks for intro by the way as well. I I can I guess I'll start with my open source <laughs> background history. You know, I actually started to contribute to open source probably when I was in college. I'm pretty fascinated about open source overall. I was looking at compilers. I was fascinated by open source overall as sort of a user and developer, right? And so that's kind of how I started just playing around things. And I got more serious contributing to open source afterwards. So my my quick background, of course, as a developer, I, I graduated from like University of Washington and Raffer was working at Microsoft. And you know, from there I worked at a few other large companies like VMware and, and things like that. And you know, I also worked at a few startups here in Seattle. And then I joined afterwards I joined a startup called Mesosphere. And mm-hmm. after that, started my own company. But I guess, you know, since we're talking more about open source and code, you know, the, the, the really my open source journey from college tr- tr- turned into a lot more serious when I joined, because I, I was on the Cloud Foundry team. And Cloud Foundry, you know, I was, I was an early member there, and that, that was open source. That was sort of my right. first open source, I guess, professional <laughs> gig. Right. You know, like I write open source code majority of the time. And that was much, much more different process, you know. And so that that was actually what opened up my eyes because I was working with like, for example, the Redis co-creator. And you know, that was actually really interesting because I saw how open source was really democratizing a lot of people's access. A lot of great developers, they only graduated from college and of really have great careers because they were just working on open source. Anyway, that's that was kind of my fascination open source even even grew from there. <laughs> so right. I become much more active in Apache because I was like, oh, I want to actually be much more, you know, I want to grow more, I want to be more influential in the community. I think open source is actually a great way to do it. So I went on to contribute to like Drill, uh on a do projects. Right? I did a few patches in the Hive and Pig. So you have contributed to large open source projects like Mesos and Spark and Kafka. So what specifically what we'd like to talk about today is uh, code review processes, especially in these large open source projects, because, you know, there's a lot of differences uh, when you add more developers in all these projects that you have contributed to, which of these projects do you think have been the largest in terms of people who have contributed to? I, I think the largest has to be probably Kubernetes and Spark. Right. They have the largest right. amount of people there. And to be honest, I wasn't, I contribute a few patches in Kubernetes, but not like super active mm-hmm. on the community side because I was mostly working at Mesos. Mesos is probably a smaller community, I would say. Spark has a lot more larger. So I think I'm probably in terms of like very active and much more people is probably Spark. Like Apache Spark, right. a ton of folks. Yeah. Right. So we'd love to talk about some processes. So a lot, a lot of open source projects, they have some basic sanity projects. Like, so I have contributed to the Django project in the past and they have a different set of, you know, uh, conventions and things that they hold very dearly. So when you talk about a large project like Kubernetes, 
on an overview what are some of these processes how how does the code review process in general look like yeah you know there's it's it's quite different when it and there's there's actually different parts of a process right there's a process of how it actually evaluates the code itself right there's a process mm-hmm. of how who gets assigned or who gets to not really like you're the only one to uh, to really review that code but like who is probably more the bill has the ability to actually sign off that this is good to merge right and also there's a process of even like how do i manage all the prs that i have right? from like a macro like there's probably thousands of prs or hundreds of prs with a bunch of people involved right how do we know which which one is more important and stuff like that so from large vertical code review i think it always starts from the project's point of view like a lot of these projects like spark or kubernetes they have not every the same pro, not every project has the same structure but some projects mm-hmm. has more of a roadmap right that hey we kind of agree on wanting to ship these large macro features in this release right and so we want to able to you know, look at all the sort of prs and all this stuff that's associated with these features so sometimes some people use like jira or some other project management tools to kind of link to the code it's it's every project has their own very unique style i think when it comes right. to like, reviewing their code cuz it's it's largely it really depends on what your what the pr is about right you know you're probably not going to have the exact same sort of detail and the exact same sort of um uh process and people involved when it comes to like code review because every pr is, is the nature is different some are just more on a cli or for more tooling front right it's not actually touch on the core or you know when it comes to spark right you know working on sort of like the cli scripting and build scripts you're going to have a little different sort of uh, code review nuances if you're comparing mm-hmm. that to like the sequel parts right because it, mm-hmm. it impacts a lot of sort of other components and stuff like that so it's the, the overall process will be like you know when when somebody submits a pr to let's say github right you usually have to the contributor probably has to learn and we will set documentation out there you kind of have to learn how to sort of label your pr the right way right most most github projects or most open source projects sort of have this problem of like who who gets to review my code but you kind of there's a process of figuring out who who is the right person to ping <laughs> right to code review uh, that's one first thing right? and once you find the right people they maybe they worked on that part of the code base a lot more or this hopefully documented in sort of the ownership or maintainers in that section of the code you get them to review and their process is pretty much just going through the code a couple times right i mean it's if it's critical you probably have to like show me where other tests are show me what's your benchmarks show me what kind of your before after right some require more data associated with those prs if it's you know performance related or it could be impacting performance otherwise it will go through sort of the same standard code review process you probably everyone's familiar with if you're a developer which is like look at your style right look at the way your code has been written you know does it follow the same correct conventions right is it does it have commenting does it have good documentation right it, it has a sort of a checklist i would say mhm and that's actually part of how contributors become good committers one big sort of criteria is been how good are you with code reviews because you're right. kind of like the gatekeeper of those open source projects too so it's right. kind of goes hand in hand that process is is really important but basically yeah 
you, you started looking into all different kind of issues around that piece of code and trying to understand, right, what is the right questions you should ask, what is the right uh, things you should nitpick on. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's, that's largely, I think, from an from open source point of view, it's probably not going to be the, that difference. If you mm-hmm. talk about the nuanced details of how regular developers look at your code, I mean, depending on where you are. Of course, the, the reviewer often is dictating how much process and how much rounds you're going to take. And one interesting idea that you, know, that, that you just mentioned is different parts of the code base can have different code review processes. And that's very, that's very interesting because in general, you know, when, when you're a small startup or people in, in small companies and uh, even in large companies within small teams, people don't generally seem, seem, seem to you know, kind of segregate the processes like this. Like if you have one project, you have some set you know, rules for reviews, but this is very interesting. So how does one go about segregating this? So as you said, some critical parts will have different code reviews and some non-critical parts will have different code review processes. So how, what is a, what is a good way to kind of segregate this? What are the parameters that you look at? Is it just the importance or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's definitely the importance and also the impact, right? I think probably impact right. is probably the way to describe this because some code, if you change one part of it, it changes everything, right? It could be the core library that we use. You know, when it comes to like mesos, we use like some core libraries to actually able to send messages to each other. So like we have like a little actor framework called the process, mm-hmm. right? So changing that will change every single code out there because everything is built on top of it. So you know, you can easily introduce performance bugs if you don't think hard enough when it comes to like the request path, the response path. So, I mean, there's a different rigor. This may not be a different process, but different rigor. But I think right. you introduce different, new, even newer steps or data or things to do when it comes to, like, for example, if you look at APIs, right? <clears throat> You know, APIs is probably you're not going to you're not going to code review your APIs the same way you code review your your toolings because APIs right. are, there are seven issues. There. Do you have backward compatibility, right? Do you mm-hmm. have sort of like the semantic checks? Do you have you know these sort of things that can really impact how I upgrade my my version to my next version, right? Mm-hmm. Did you do the right, right. Sort of check the tests and checklists? So maybe in a very very big high level. Process probably roughly the same, but the the data required and the questions you ask is quite different. You know, right? And the rounds you have to do is quite different. So, I think it, it's really about like, what is this component about? You know, you know, is this is this going to be something that can really impact what user facing you know functionality will look like, or it could actually very impact a lot of the core functionality everywhere. Those things will have a lot more rigorous review because we can easily introduce things and especially like things that can easily break as well. You know, there's a lot of moving parts of the code base or like really nuanced part of the code base sometimes that's really hard to change, right? And those require like a lot of passes, right? Somebody has to download that PR and test it certain different ways, you know, and, and try to hopefully even automate that whole process a little bit. But so I will say that's, that's probably most of the time you're trying to decide what's the impact of this particular code is doing and deciding on the fact like who gets to do what. So it's sometimes a little life triage even. <laughs> what should we even do with this PR? 
right? That's a lot of discussion we have for a lot of open source teams, and I'm sure a lot of different development teams. Like, how should we how should we treat this PR? You know, it came from a community member. They want to do this. It could most likely impact all the other things this way and that way. Like, how how do we right? What is the right way to to deal with this? So a lot of things are kind of ad hoc process changes as well, just based on what it is actually. Of course, impact is important, and I think from what you're what you just said. Uh, I think context of the change is super critical, and even if the change comes from, let's say, a long-time committer or a new contributor,、yeah. I think you know judging that impact becomes very, very important for someone to actually review that code. And then, if someone is doing that, they need, say, maybe historical context about this change.、Uh, let's say a critical part of the API is being changed. Then that person who is reviewing the code, they must have the context. And I think that that kind of translates back to say private code as well. Like even in organizations, you know, people keep coming and going in and out of the team. And if there is not a lot of solid documentation, then judging the impact of one change, and 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 especially if something that can have say long running or say larger you know butterfly effects, if you change something, even in private code, I think that becomes very important. For the code reviewer, when they're triaging to judge the impact,、um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's it's really it's actually a really tough problem, especially when it comes to open source, because you're, I mean, once once your open source project, you know, picks up popularity, right, or, or picks up a lot more users, you're gonna start seeing a lot more people contributing, right, or actually wanting to really move your project this way and that way, right, or right, there's a lot more people that. There's a lot has a lot more opinions about what should be done and what shouldn't be done, and and even though you have maintainers and committers, you know they can't they they act sort of authoritative figures, but at the same time, you're not going to be a good committer if you don't play nice or or know how to work with the community.、Right? So it's it's a tough balance when it comes to impact because impact is not just about this code. Sometimes it's really also about like what is the context of this code, like who, exactly. who is the user, right? Who is this company,、yeah. or even like what? What are they trying to do, right? And it's really nuanced. Like it's 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 kind of funny. Like you think about open source, you know, if if you're in a company, you know that everyone in that team is going to be working on this code base, unless they got moved or unless they are, you know, got reworked or something like that, right? Then it's not a, it's then you know like they're going to work on this code base full time. Open source is quite different. You know, somebody might submit a humongous patch. And you may not see that person again, you know. And if you just submit a code, the next question will be, "Hey, who's going to maintain this code moving forward?" You know. And that process will be、mm. a little different. So it's there's a lot of these kind of thinkings that go into like how do we even treat a code review in the first place, you know. And that、right. that all factors in how we should even know how to merge a code or not, you know. So that's a lot of discussions. I feel like. A process for code review sometimes is online and offline. I would say, online on a GitHub project and offline through a lot of like, you know, emails, texts, and whatever forms, IRC, right, whatever ways you communicate. Because there's just the context is sometimes really hard to convey just purely on the PRs on its own. Of course,、and、a lot of discussions just kind of build enough trust on each side to、right. even. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think from that perspective. 
working working in a on a private code base or inside companies it's much easier because let's say a a, a team lead or a product manager is basically defining defining the goal or defining the direction and everyone is kind of on board like most of the times people are on board that okay this is the vision or this is where the product is going i think that is something which is a little more difficult to convey in a in an open source project where anyone can suggest any change yeah. and that might not align to the goals of the project uh, the project or the scope of the project yeah. and then you know and you know we have come across like there have been many examples of instances where someone wants to propose something and the core maintainers or the creators of the project they deem it as hey it's it's not it's out of scope or it's 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 not doesn't fall uh, within the vision of the project but some contributors want to get something done so i think that's something that's easier in the context of a team as compared to uh, an open source project in an open source community i you kind of have to treat it as like a it's still a company you know it's not like it's it's really sort of free for all right there's still people that make decisions there's still people that leads but it's not typically just from an organizational pure profits business point of view right it's actually more of a yeah who is the creator and who is the core members of this project that sets the tone of this whole project right so they are really the foundational people that dictates a lot of things which in some ways is a good thing right because without that vision and some way aligning everyone you could literally have a project just end up doing too many things right <laughs> yeah well, you know and that that yeah. actually becomes like a nightmare to use and you know you can look at some some particular examples of projects that end up a little bit that way you know right uh, we can even talk about some examples but you know like for example like, like openstack right some of these projects that are super complicated have a bunch of components a bunch of people involved you know it's let's, let's shift uh, tracks a little bit let's talk about tooling so in, in in the projects that you have contributed to and these are some very large open source projects maybe hundreds or thousands of contributors how much of the code review process been augmented by some sort of tooling as in we know that you know all these projects would have a ci setup but then what part of code reviews has been augmented by some sort of automated tooling like linters or other static analysis tools or even something else like you know pull request reminders or something like that oh yeah yeah every project has a little different nuance because every project has i guess different people and different companies and different sort of toolings either being built or being adopted right and you know like mesos for example is a c++ project you know we had a bunch of toolings really geared toward for c++ but i think depending on the language you're going to have different toolings available right so i would say that most projects adopted probably some level of toolings to help you you know identify like test coverage for example right or like some level of tooling just basically do the simple linting simple style checks right every language has a sort of a style check right you can use go format for go you can use <clears throat> some cling cling stuff for 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 C++ or some others any LLVM languages i suppose or cling support languages when it comes to python you have you know all these 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 tools available i think most open source we we all trying to always <clears throat> automate a lot of the if we can automate something we'll try to <laughs> basically mm-hmm. but it's it's we cannot only just rely on these toolings sometimes because the toolings actually are i was in toolings are not that easy to configure you know when it comes like 
because Java has check styles, right? There's a lot of rules you can embrace, but it's always a combination of of style checks and linting and some kind of CI that kicks off, right? You know, you're gonna see sometimes every PR on GitHub, right, has has a bunch of like gating checks to make sure all the tests runs and everybody has different infrastructure. If you're an Apache project, Apache gives you like a set of tools just come by default. You know, you're gonna have Jenkins, you're gonna have um, Jira, you're gonna have, you know, review board, right? They just all set the same exact stuff for everyone. I mean, you can actually opt in to use other things, but for the, in the past, most teams just choose to use the same tools there. So yeah, there's, 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 those are the standard toolings. You know, Kubernetes, for example, has like PR stale bots, right? And I think Spark also has that too now, you know, where it's just like, hey, if you have a PR that nobody commented and nobody has any activity, we're going to automatically close them. And that's, that's probably ways to try to help reduce sort of a lot of the dead PRs out there. Because it's, it's a little depressing when you see like, you know, thousands of pending PRs just sitting there. And that's that's a big problem for every open source project that's uh, out there. I feel like you know that at least we have right. a lot of contributors. Yeah, everybody attacked in very different ways. You know, right. And I think as as and when the project grows and you have more and more contributors coming in, more and more PRs start coming in. The initial set of contributors uh, or the maintainers they they have a very hard time in keeping up with the volume. And I think automating parts of code reviews, like things like you know initial style checks, right, which is something that people generally nitpick on or uh, <laughs> bike shit on, maybe. So yeah. those things can be automated. So you don't have a discussion on something as simple as style issues. So I think. The Python community, or say, as you mentioned, Go format, uh, the Python community as well, you know, there has been a lot of adoption of tools like Black, the Black formatter. Go FMT, of course, has been like ubiquitous. So I think adding those just removes one layer of, you know, manual intervention needed. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a curious thing that, you know, I, I personally have noticed, like, even if you go and look at the top thousand projects on, say, GitHub, on, say, any language, say, Go or Python, for example, the open source products don't generally have, they've not generally adopted any sort of open source tooling. This might be false for large projects who have done this, but there, there's still a lot of open source projects who have not adopted anything. Could there be a reason of, for the apprehension of adding something, adding an automated tooling for helping with code reviews? You said one of the things that you mentioned is configuration is hard. Do you think that is the reason or is there something else? Yeah, yeah. And actually, I'm going to touch on two parts of this because I feel like even on the larger projects, right, the, the, the style checks are still not enough a lot of times, right? Because they, they, they check things that are simple enough where like, hey, I need my lines to kind of be over you know, 100 characters or you, know, you cannot use spaces versus tabs, right? I mean, the style of checks are definitely getting more and more complicated, but a lot of times there's definitely nuanced rules that for some reason <laughs> the maintainers came up with that they want to really hard follow it. You know, like don't use past tense or comments, right? You know, I, I, we haven't really seen a, a, a tool that actually checks. <laughs> I think mean, there's grammar checks for comments maybe, but, you know, I haven't really seen that, that work that well. You know, you make sure, like Mesos has this rule that you, can, you have to always end your comments with periods, right? With some kind of like punctuation at least. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's all these weird rules. Not weird, but it's just like it's an artifact of a style rule that you just religiously being followed by that project at which we haven't found any sort of checks to be able to do them. 
Right. So those are, you know, little nuanced things that is sometimes a little uh, uh, debated. So essentially, so so essentially, you would say that you know, since each of the each of the projects could have uh, rules specific to only that project or conventions specific to that project, which not which might not be available in any of the open source tooling present, people just don't bother setting up any. Um, I think well, that's definitely nuanced. Like if you're if you're young. Or like I'm just getting my open source project started, right? I I open source something. It depends. I think most people will be adopting some kind of style checks and some kind of everyone's sort of developer background is different. You know, some people don't even care mm-hmm. about these styles. Right. You know, when you see a lot of GitHub projects, right? You could be a students, you could be you know your fun little side project. You know, typically if it's more of a fun side project, you're not gonna you typically don't follow like a lot of rigorous when it comes to like making sure all the security, you know, sanity checks and all my formatting, everything sort of all automated because it's work. <laughs> to be honest, right. it's, it's, like, it's like work involved, right? How do I have the infrastructure? Do I have the time to set up all these infrastructure to, for me or not? And if it's a significant time that needs to be invested, I'll probably punt on that to this, this decision as long as I can, right? So that I can just mm-hmm. get to work on my open source product, the, the code I was really interested in working on. Right? If you're open sourcing your code based on, I don't know, I worked at LinkedIn or Pinterest, or I'm open sourcing my code, you're going to probably follow the same sort of tool sets for how you set up your project internally, how your pro- your company is doing it, and mm-hmm. your project as well. So I think for the most part, it's just work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You yeah. know, running Google Format or- is one thing. But running Go format is oh, Go makes it really easy. The Python right. makes it that easy, actually. You know, you kind of mm-hmm. have to like pipe in all the right files. You kind of have to replace those files, right? You know, and and I mean, it's it's a lot of work. Like just bringing that make file is nice. It's right. not that hard, but also like you end up if you've done it once, you can easily copy it. You probably will just do that. You know, you don't want to sure. spend all your time just making sure all the right style checks are passed and everything. So I think mm-hmm. it's just really about the, the investment cost versus sure. what yeah. yeah, and I think that makes sense for smaller projects or hobby projects. Maybe if someone is just doing it uh, as a side project and not spending a lot of time, and they're the only ones who are contributing, they might not they might not uh, bother setting up any tooling, but I'm sure you'd agree that, you know, as and when more contributors start contributing and, you know, if, if the project becomes serious or, you know, if the project starts becoming mainstream, then tooling like these, they can help maintain the code quality, like increasing readability. Yeah, you know? for sure. I, I agree. And, you know, every project is so different, you know, some right. projects really care about making sure, like I have much restrictor rules when it comes to style and 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 just you know stack analysis overall some projects are much more like nobody has agreed on what a good style means anyway <laughs> so sure <laughs> you're gonna have like various kind of levels like spark for example you know i don't think there's like a standard style really i mean there's a spark style guide that kind of mm-hmm. not sometimes i don't think it's always enforced even um Right. Yes. A different level of rigorous just depends on who is involved and how do you split the code review up? Because for, for, for Spark, it's not like one guy reviewing everyone's code, you know, but or, or very small amount of people. It's broken up into components like the scheduler, mm-hmm. you know, the build tools, the, the core SQL, or every one of them has like a set of people 
and it grows pretty large now. You know, it's like every one of that part is probably have like tens of people that could actually just merge code. So, right. You know, it's hard to con- have a consistent style unless it's either automated or there's like, or it grew very slowly and very rigorously of who gets to be part of the committer and reviewership. But mm-hmm. if you're mm-hmm. not really careful on adding people, then you're basically going to run into like a a zoo problem. You know, so it, yeah, it's just different. Some like mesos were super strict. When it comes to style, right? There's like only right. a few people. There's very fewer committers, and every one of them kind of have to pass a, a lot longer test, I would say, of style sort of、uh, learnings of the whole process overall. The way to configure these tools and how does the committers and maintainers care, right?、Mm-hmm. It's a trade-off,、mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, you want to have a lot more reviewers and committers being added to your projects. You may not have enough of the time and sort of way to convey that, or sort of to train them, right? Because a lot of things are still manual,、right. unfortunately. Yeah.、Right. So I think automating is is definitely if you can automate a lot more, I think it's definitely every open source project moving forward、nice. should be looking at to automate a lot of these、yeah. things because it's just too hard to scale. And one curious thing that you mentioned, you mentioned that Mesos had a convention that all comments should end with a period, right? And So connecting back with how different projects take style seriously at different levels. So if you, for example, you know, if you, if you made a commit in the Mesos project where the comment does not end with a period, would that block your pull request from getting merged? Oh yeah, for sure. One is I'm gonna fix it for you, or whoever maintainer. Like sure, <laughs> okay, just one period. I'm just gonna fix that for you, right? And and, right. and push it in. You know, if it's if it's a new committer, a new contributor, even right, because they want to make sure they 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 want to keep coming back, right?、Like、But hey, if you committed something that didn't check for that period, you're, you're for sure gonna hear other committers <laughs> asking you like, what what's wrong with you? <laughs> wow, wow, that's that's like super rigorous. If you think about if you think about st-、uh, as far as style goes, that's like super rigorous. If if it actually blocks your PR from getting merged, or、yeah. someone fixes fixes that for you,、oh, no, no. do you think- make sure you fix every single style thing before they merge? And that's、wow. that's a real that's a philosophy that comes back to the maintainers, right?、Mm-hmm. You know, Mesos, you know Ben Hyman, you know he's the creator of Mesos, right? And and he's he's the I guess he's the one that started, and maybe even a few other Mesos core folks in the, in the early days.、Mm-hmm. And we've always been preaching about the same principle. Like, there's a bro- I forgot what it, how do you call it, but it's like a broken window, broken window、um, theory. Yeah, yeah, broken window theory, right? Like, hey, if you allow、yeah. a little bit, right? I, I don't know how to even say the story the best way, but I, I, it's like a story. Like, hey, if you if you allow a little, a little broken window to happen in、yeah. in, in, the, in the in the in the I don't know a district or whatever. Yeah, people start yeah. to get. It gets exponentially worse from there. You know, like people、yeah. have this new norm that they will start to just feel like they can start slip. Like, oh, you know, since this is just you have you see a broken window, now we can start to allow even worse things to happen. You know. Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's actually the, yeah religious view、uh, <laughs> of, yeah. of the committers. Like, hey, we cannot let anything in because if we start slipping anything, we're gonna allow our project to just even seem so much worse. Over time, you know? right? Yeah. yeah, and 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 I think that's pretty interesting. And you know, I was actually coming to、uh, the broken window theory here. So、uh, Jeff Atwood wrote this post quite some time back, and you know, to kind of rehash that, 
so this theory comes from criminology and and uh, what you said is partly partly how the theory works is that you know people experimented that you know they they took a street and there was a building with n- everything was shiny like no broken windows and everything was fine and it was a bad neighborhood and they just left it for some time like a couple of weeks and nothing happened not even a single incident and then the same building everything was still shiny but then in the same bad neighborhood they broke one window and 10 days later or something like that the entire building was demolished like entire building was like you know the people broke everything and it was like completely completely gone so that is where it comes from i i think i remind me because ben hanley exactly told me that story i i, I couldn't remember word to word but yeah now it reminds me of exact the he he told me that as sort of a getting to be trained as a mesos committer <laughs> right <laughs> you know yeah yeah so yeah so, so as in coming towards an open ended question here this kind of very religious rigor in terms of something as as you know something like style and and again it's a very polarizing topic because as you said a lot of people say that hey it's okay we don't care but again on the other hand there are a lot of projects who take this very seriously yeah so kind of an open ended question for you do you think in the long term that kind of rigor and if 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 that rigor is applied to style I'm, and i'm i'm sure that also applies to more important stuff like mm-hmm. say anti patterns or bug risks do you think that kind of rigor to something like style helps the project in the long run and and this holds true for both my question is both in terms of open source projects and private do you think that kind that kind of rigor helps in the long term and how do you think that helps in the long term my honest answer it's it's quite complicated you know i don't think there's really just one way to measure this that is it good or bad because every open source project was created for a reason you know like what was the main motivation behind this project where does people want to push this project towards to and does all the things we do even align cuz i can tell you that if you're so religious about the styles right and you're so religious about let's say things that just makes it much harder to commit your code to you're going to naturally see a lot less people feel motivated to even do things in our code base right and so it's good and bad i think when it comes to like mission critical software that you want to have the best quality possible at all times and trying to use people right as the main way to gate that then I think that's probably the process. If you follow more religiously about more stricter rules, I think the hope is that you create a much more knit tight people community that really cares about quality and really cares about like producing the best things. But I mean, if you follow if you follow Mesos and Kubernetes as a storyline, right? Mesos has been used in Twitter and production first right they used in production for for a couple years right so it's definitely mission critical and i i even remember certain commits that happened in open source you know broke <laughs> made outages right or not like not like full outages but like you know definitely performance impacts right in their clusters so we are all very careful or try to be careful when it comes to doing with the code base because you know they have people just running at scale 
and Kubernetes didn't start that way. <laughs> you know, it didn't have much of a sort of a style guide, sort of rigorous at all. It's it's not I would say like a free for all, but it's much much more open. You know, and I think you you saw the project kind of went different ways. You know, Mesos I think is still much more. You know, have the best quality overall. You know, when it comes to like bugs and you know how many sort of like performance and and, and issues you see. But it's a lot smaller community, right? And it didn't grow. And when it came to like, hey, when it, from a community point of view, when you're looking at Kubernetes and Mesos, like everyone picks Kubernetes, and now it become like the default, pretty much the default sort of orchestrator, right? Because it has the largest community. And I will, I, I will contribute that to actually the ability for Kubernetes to be able to attract community in the early days and allow more people to be involved, allow more people to actually be openly contributing and be part of that community. Like Mesos, you can act, you can interact as a user, but much more harder to interact as a contributor, much, much more harder. I think. So I think in the long run, it really depends on what you're optimizing for. Like if you are actually optimizing for the right, if you want to optimize for a large community, you want a lot of adoption, a lot of people to be part of your code base and really able to really get to have a large sort of ecosystem. I think your style and your religion around or your even your code reviews matters because that can play out a narrative even in the long run. That's, you know, what is your project really about? Because, you know, if you're a security tool, like I'm a cryptography tool that's doing, you know, the latest security checks, you probably don't want like an open ecosystem of folks, basically, right? <laughs> I'm not for a long run. I want to make sure I'm the the best, highest quality code base that's knit tight. You know, I'm gonna power everything, and right there's there's really your your way of operating that project will be quite different versus hey, I want to be the default standard of a platform of a layer, you know, and I want to make sure I own sort of the narrative of this whole layer. That you can't be that. It's going to be a hard balance, right? You you cannot really be too religious on one side because it's going to really hurdle hurt your adoption when it comes to contributing in your community. So I think in the long run, like yeah, I think it really just depends on what your goal is, you know, and does mm-hmm. what you do really align with that goal. And unfortunately for Mesos, I think we, it's not the only reason, of course, we didn't, you know, got as many contributors for Kubernetes. I mean, C++ definitely definitely doesn't help here. But I think it, it, it does contribute to it quite a bit, I think, because a lot of people did get deterred away when it comes to contributing because we our code review process was, was too hard for them. And not everyone actually wants to deal with that, you know. Because you have to learn C++, and also you have to right. deal with all these little style of stuff that makes and it's hard to train. You know, you know, at first PR, you're gonna see like hundred comments, and it's not. I'm not even joking. Like it's probably close to eighty to hundred for a lot of these things. Wow, all on style, and that's how religiously we try to do things, right? But that's that also really hurts the people feeling motivated to push through all those changes as well. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's important for projects to find that balance depending on what they're optimizing for so that, you know, one, they don't let their code go to all crap, but also don't set a bar too high that, you know, beginners or first time contributors, they are discouraged. So I think there's a fine line that, you know, projects will have to 
will have to find. And I think that holds true for even companies who are trying to adopt some of these processes from open source to find that fine line. So to kind of sum this episode up, we talked about processes in these large open source communities. We talked about how context matters and how tooling can help at least eliminate the first level of, of human intervention needed and make everyone's life better. This would be the wrap for our episode three. Thank you so much, Tim, for your time and on, on the episode. I hope you had a great time. And for our listeners, oh, this is a wrap. And we will see you in the next episode of Good Code Podcast. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.